Book 10, Chapter 7 to 10 of 10 Books on Architecture. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Fredrik Karlsson. 10 Books on Architecture by Vitruvius. Translated by Morris Hickey Morgan. Chapter 7. The Pump of Stesibius. 1. Next I must tell about the machine of Stesibius, which raises water to a height. It is made of bronze and has at the bottom a pair of cylinders set a little way apart, and there is a pipe connected with each, the two running up like the prongs of a fork, side by side, to a vessel which is between the cylinders. In this vessel are valves, accurately fitting over the upper vents of the pipes, which stop up the vent holes and keep what has been forced by pressure into the vessel from going down again. 2. Over the vessel a cowl is adjusted, like an inverted funnel, and fastened to the vessel by means of a wedge thrust through a staple to prevent it from being lifted off by the pressure of the water that is forced in. On top of this a pipe is jointed, called the trumpet, which stands up vertically. Valves are inserted in the cylinders, beneath the lower vents of the pipes, and over the openings which are in the bottoms of the cylinders. 3. Pistons, smoothly turned, rubbed with the oil, and inserted from above into the cylinders, work with the rods and levers upon the air and water in the cylinders, and, as the valves stop up the openings, force and drive the water by repeated pressure and expansion through the vents of the pipes into the vessel from which the cowl receives the inflated currents, and sends them through the pipe at the top, and so water can be supplied for a fountain from a reservoir at a lower level. 4. This, however, is not the only apparatus which Stesibius is said to have thought out, but many more of various kinds are shown by him to produce effects borrowed from nature by means of water pressure and compression of the air, as, for example, blackbirds singing by means of waterworks, and angobatai and figures that drink and move, and other things that are found to be pleasing to the eye and the ear. 5. Of these I have selected what I considered most useful and necessary, and I have thought it best to speak in the preceding book about timepieces, and in this about the methods of raising water. The rest, which are not subservient to our needs, but to pleasure and amusement, may be found in the commentaries of Stesibius himself by any who are interested in such refinements. Chapter 8. The Water Organ. 1. With regard to water organs, however, I shall not fail with all possible brevity and precision to touch upon their principles, and to give a sufficient description of them. A wooden base is constructed, and on it is set an altar-shaped box made of bronze. Uprights, fastened together like ladders, are set up on the base to the right and to the left of the altar. They hold the bronze pump cylinders, the movable bottoms at which, carefully turned on a lathe, have iron elbows fastened to their centres and jointed to levers, and are wrapped in fleeces of wool. In the tops of the cylinders are openings, each about three digits in diameter. Close to these openings are bronze dolphins, mounted on joints and holding chains in their mouths, from which hang symbol-shaped valves let down under the openings in the cylinders. 2. Inside the altar, which holds the water, is a regulator shaped like an inverted funnel, under which there are cubes, each about three digits high, keeping a free space below between the lips of the regulator and the bottom of the altar. Tightly fixed on the neck of the regulator is the wind-chest, which supports the principal part of the contrivance, called in Greek the canon musicus. Running longitudinally, there are four channels in it if it is a tetrachord, six if it is a hexachord, eight if it is an octachord. 3. Each of the channels has a cock in it, furnished with an iron handle. These handles, when turned, open vent holes from the windchest into the channels. 
From the channels to the canon there are vertical openings corresponding to vent holes in a board above, which board is termed pinax in Greek. Between this board and the canon are inserted sliders, pierced with holes to correspond and rubbed with oil so that they can easily be moved and slid back into place again. They close the above-mentioned openings and are called the plinths. Their going and coming now closes and now opens the holes. 4. These sliders have iron jacks fixed to them and connected with the keys, and the keys, when touched, make the sliders move regularly. To the upper surface of the openings in the board, where the wind finds egress from the channels, rings are soldered, and into them the reeds of all the organ pipes are inserted. From the cylinders there are connecting pipes attached to the neck of the regulator and directed towards the vent holes in the wind chest. In the pipes are valves, turned on a lathe, and set where the pipes are connected with the cylinders. When the wind chest has received the air, these valves will stop up the openings and prevent the wind from coming back again. 5. So, when the levers are raised, the elbows draw down the bottoms of the cylinders as far as they can go, and the dolphins, which are mounted on joints, let the cymbals fall into the cylinders, thus filling the interiors with air. Then the elbows, raising the bottoms within the cylinders by repeated and violent blows, and stopping the openings above by means of the cymbals, compress the air which is enclosed in the cylinders, and force it into the pipes, through which it runs into the regulator, and through its neck into the windchest. With a stronger motion of the levers, the air is still more compressed, streams through the apertures of the cocks, and fills the channels with wind. 6. So when the keys, touched by the hand, drive the sliders forward and draw them back regularly, alternately stopping and opening the holes, they produce resonant sounds in a great variety of melodies conforming to the laws of music. With my best efforts I have striven to set forth an obscure subject clearly in writing, but the theory of it is not easy, nor clearly understood by all, save only those who have had some practice in things of this kind. If anybody has failed to understand it, he will certainly find, when he comes to know the thing itself, that it is carefully and exquisitely contrived in all respects. Chapter 9. The Hodometer 1. The drift of our treatise now turns to a useful invention of the greatest ingenuity, transmitted by our predecessors, which enables us, while sitting in a carriage on the road or sailing by sea, to know how many miles of a journey we have accomplished. This will be possible as follows. Let the wheels of the carriage be each four feet in diameter, so that if a wheel has a mark made upon it, and begins to move forward from that mark in making its revolution on the surface of the road, it will have covered the definite distance of twelve and a half feet on reaching the mark at which it began to revolve. 2. Having provided such wheels, let a drum with a single tooth, projecting beyond the face of its circumference, be firmly fastened to the inner side of the hub of the wheel. Then, above this, let a case be firmly fastened to the body of the carriage, containing a revolving drum set on edge and mounted on an axle. On the face of the drum there are four hundred teeth, placed at equal intervals, and engaging the tooth of the drum below. The upper drum has, moreover, one tooth fixed to its side, and standing out farther than the other teeth. 3. Then, above, let there be a horizontal drum, similarly toothed and contained in another case, with its teeth engaging the tooth fixed to the side of the second drum, and let as many holes be made in this third drum, as will correspond to the number of miles, more or less, it does not matter, that a carriage can go in a day's journey. 
Let a small round stone be placed in every one of these holes, and in the receptacle or case containing that drum let one hole be made, with a small pipe attached, through which, when they reach that point, the stone placed in the drum may fall one by one into a bronze vessel set underneath in the body of the carriage. 4. Thus, as the wheel in going forward carries with it the lowest drum, and as the tooth of this at every revolution strikes against the teeth of the upper drum and makes it move along, the result will be that the upper drum is carried round once for every four hundred revolutions of the lowest, and that the tooth fixed to this side pushes forward one tooth of the horizontal drum. Since, therefore, with four hundred revolutions of the lowest drum the upper will revolve once, the progress made will be a distance of five five thousand feet or one mile hence every stone making a ringing sound as it falls will give warning that we have gone one mile the number of stones gathered from beneath and counted will show the number of miles in the day's journey five on board ship also the same principle may be employed with a few changes an axle is passed through the sides of the ship with its ends projecting and wheels are mounted on them four feet in diameter with projecting floatboards fastened round their faces and striking the water the middle of the axle in the middle of the ship carries a drum with one tooth projecting beyond its circumference here a case is placed containing a drum with four hundred feet at regular intervals engaging the tooth of the drum that is mounted on the axle and having also one other tooth fixed to its side and projecting beyond its circumference six above in another case fastened to the former is a horizontal drum toothed in the same way and with its teeth engaging the tooth fixed to the side of the drum that is set on edge so that one of the teeth of the horizontal drum is struck at each revolution of that tooth and the horizontal drum is thus made to revolve in a circle let holes be made in the horizontal drum in which whole small round stones are to be placed in the receptacle or case containing that drum let one hole be opened with a small pipe attached through which a stone as soon as the obstruction is removed falls with a ringing sound into a bronze vessel seven so when the ship is making headway whether under oars or under a gale of wind the floatboards on the wheels will strike against the water and be driven violently back thus turning the wheels and they revolving will move the axle and the axle the drum the tooth of which as it goes round strikes one of the teeth of the second drum at each revolution and makes it turn a little so when the floatboards have caused the wheels to revolve four hundred times this drum having turned round once will strike a tooth of the horizontal drum with a tooth that is fixed to its side hence every time the turning of the horizontal drum brings a stone to a hole it will let the stone out through the pipe thus by the sound and the number the length of the voyage will be shown in miles i have described how to make things that may be provided for use and amusement in times that are peaceful and without fear chapter ten catapults or scorpions one i shall next explain the symmetrical principles on which scorpions and ballistae may be constructed inventions devised for defence against danger and in the interest of self-preservation the proportions of these engines are all computed from the given length of the arrow which the engine is intended to throw and the size of the holes in the capitals through which the twisted sinews that hold the arms are stretched is one-ninth of that length two the height and breadth of the capital itself must then conform to the size of the holes the boards at the top and bottom of the capital which are called peritreti 
should be in thickness equal to one hole and in breadth to one and three quarters except that their extremities were the equal one hole and a half the side posts on the right and left should be four holes high excluding the tenons and five twelfths of a hole thick the tenons half a hole the distance from a side post to the hole is one quarter of a hole and it is also one quarter of a hole from the hole to the post in the middle the breadth of the post in the middle is equal to one hole and one-eighth the thickness to one hole. 3. The opening in the middle post where the arrow is laid is equal to one-fourth of the hole. The four surrounding corners should have iron plates nailed to their sides and faces or should be studded with bronze pins and nails. The pipe, called syrix in Greek, has a length of nineteen holes. The strips, which some term cheeks, nailed at the right and left of the pipe, have a length of nineteen holes and a height and thickness of one hole. Two other strips, enclosing the windlass, are nailed on to these, three holes long and half a hole in breadth. The cheek nailed on to them, named the bench, or by some the box, and made fast by means of the dovetail tenons, is one hole thick and seven-twelfths of a hole in height. The length of the windlass is equal to holes, the thickness of the windlass to three-quarters of a hole. 4. The latch is seven-twelfths of a hole in length and one-quarter in thickness. So also its socket-piece. The trigger or handle is three holes in length and three-quarters of a hole in breadth and thickness. The trough in the pipe is sixteen holes in length, one-quarter of a hole in thickness and three-quarters in height. The base of the standard on the ground is equal to eight holes. The breadth of the standard where it is fastened into the plinth is three-quarters of a hole. Its thickness two-thirds of a hole. The height of the standard up to the tenon is twelve holes. Its breadth three-quarters of a hole, and its thickness two-thirds. It has three struts, each nine holes in length, half a hole in breadth, and five-twelfths in thickness. The tenon is one hole in length, and the head of the standard one hole and a half in length. 5. The antifix has the breadth of a hole and one-eighth, and the thickness of one hole. The smaller support, which is behind, termed in Greek antibasis, is eight holes long, three-quarters of a hole broad, and two-thirds thick. Its prop is twelve holes long, and has the same breadth and thickness as the smaller support just mentioned. Above the smaller support is its socket piece, or what is called the cushion, two and a half holes long, one and a half high, and three quarters of a hole broad. The windlass cup is two and seven twelfths holes long, two thirds of a hole thick, and three quarters broad. The cross pieces with their tenons have the length of holes, the breadth of three quarters, and the thickness of two thirds of a hole. The length of an arm is seven holes, its thickness at its base two-thirds of a hole, and at its end one-half a hole. Its curvature is equal to two-thirds of a hole. 6. These engines are constructed according to these proportions or with additions or diminutions. For, if the height of the capitals is greater than the width, when they are called high-tensioned, something should be taken from the arms, so that the more the tension is weakened by height of the capitals, the more the strength of the blow is increased by shortness of the arms. But if the capital is less high, when the term low-tensioned is used, the arms, on account of the strength, should be made a little longer, so that they may be drawn easily. Just as it takes four men to raise a load with a lever five feet long, and only two men to lift the same load with a ten-feet lever, so the longer the arms, the easier they are to draw, and the shorter, the harder. 
I have now spoken of the principles applicable to the parts and proportions of catapults. End of Book 10, Chapter 10